0: on this episode of the Evolve podcast.
1: So too often when we talk about moving the world forward, we talk about lofty ideals. But lofty ideals, even when backed up with novel approaches, oftentimes don't work. You have to think about the incentive structure. If you want to reform global higher education...
0: Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver, and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world, and we always will be. So with this show, I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together, let's ask the world's biggest questions, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Today's guest is an education revolutionary who is going head to head with the Ivy Leagues to lead the transformation of global higher education for 21st century students. Enrolling its first students in 2014, this innovative university has a 1.2 acceptance rate, tens of thousands of applicants from over 180 countries, and currently serves about 630 students across seven major cities around the globe, including San Francisco, London, and Taipei. Students are not the only one with faith in his model, as he has been backed just north of 128 in venture capital. While many have speculated how to reform higher ed, this entrepreneur has actually created a program using effective pedagogy, technology, and immersive experiences to equip a diverse group of students with the cognitive tools they need to succeed in the world after graduation for less than a third of the cost of an Ivy League university. Yet, they have no classroom facilities since all classes are conducted through an active learning platform developed by the school where students participate in seminar classes up to 19 people. And the results are speaking for themselves as their first class of 2019 has a 92% rate in employment or pursuing further education within just six months of graduation. Not his first rodeo though. This season CEO spent more than 10 years at tech company Snapfish taking the company from this uh, startup to the world's largest personal publishing service with over 42 million transactions across 22 countries and leading its sales to HP for 300 million. This education visionary has had over 10 billion media impressions and been featured in a litany of the most prestigious media outlets, including the New York Times, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Times Magazine, Inc., Forbes, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Published by the MIT Press, he has shared a 400 page blueprint for transforming higher ed in his book, Building the Intentional University Minerva and the Future of Higher Education. I'm honored to welcome the founder, chairman, and CEO, Minerva, and a man who is changing the course of history because he paid attention in his history class, Ben Nelson.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that wonderful introduction.
0: Absolutely, Ben. Well, I'd like to start back when you were at UPenn and you were kind of noticing things in your own education and kind of getting lit up to maybe this can be different. What was going on during that time?
1: Well, what was interesting for me as I was going through it, my, my parents are, are academics, but they're scientists that were trained in Israel. Okay. And the non-American university system is very task oriented, right? You go to school and you study one subject and that's all you study. There's no concept of breadth or what we refer to as the liberal arts education. And so when I went to college in at Penn, I didn't really have much of a grasp of what a liberal arts education was. And it turned out that almost no one uh, I went to school with knew what liberal arts education was. In fact, <laughs> yeah. if any of your listeners were to take a second and ask themselves, what is the definition of the liberal arts? And, you know, sometimes people think, well, well, that I guess that means art or humanities, poetry. And there's this kind of assumption that the liberal arts means stuff that isn't useful, mm. right? That is uh, knowledge for knowledge's sake, people often hear. Well, it turns out that is actually the antithesis of the liberal arts. Um, the liberal arts, the, the, the term itself comes from, Enlightenment period view of the education of ancient Rome, uh, of the Roman Republic, the short era in Rome when the citizens were enfranchised. And the idea was that in the Roman Republic, because the citizens were sovereign themselves, they didn't serve the king or uh, a a church, they were governing, they were self-governing, they were finding people to represent their interests, That population, therefore, needed to know more than a trade. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you're basically designing a bridge for the sake of the king, okay, learn how to build a bridge. You don't need to learn anything else because all you're Mm -hmm. doing for your entire life is building bridges. That's fine. But if you actually have to say, wait a second, I have to decide who will represent my best interests and in a more extreme scenario, I may be called on to be the person that represents the best interests of my fellow citizens, all of a sudden, just knowing how to build a bridge isn't enough. You actually had to be trained in the disciplines or arts that allowed you to be free or have Mm -hmm. liberty. And that is the source of the word, the liberal arts. It's what Mm -hmm. Benjamin Franklin called practical knowledge, or Thomas Jefferson called useful knowledge that you could use to enfranchise yourself to be free.
0: have liberty. Mm. And how is this applying to the 21st century?
1: Well, the remarkable thing is that no matter what your form of government, the basic insight that the founding fathers had 250 years ago, and potentially the Romans had 2000 years ago, was that learning a thing and pursuing it for the rest of your life is not the model for a modern world and you could be living under uh, an oppressive dictatorship, but still the likelihood that the job you will have at 25 will be similar to the job you have at 65 is (laughs) very, very low. Yeah. And so the greatness of the philosophy behind the liberal arts education is that it is the education that every citizen in the world should have today. The problem Mm. is, When I was at Penn, I realized universities aren't teaching it. They're not actually providing a set of systematic tools, cognitive tools, that people can deploy to anything that they pursue. Instead, they were just disseminating information, except rather than disseminating information only about one field in depth, they disseminated information on one field in pseudo-depth, and then just kind of a Chinese buffet of uh, (laughs) other, you know, edutainment that you take courses that you're related to. But ultimately, there was no coherent track of intellectual development at universities. And given that the entire representative republic in which we live is based on universities actually doing that, I figure that that's a problem.
0: Mm, yeah well before you started working on maneuver you spent nearly a decade at snapfish why the break in that you know initial spark that you had and then what made you change your mind and come back to education
1: well so for four years uh, as an undergrad i you know, I got this kind of lightning bolt moment my first semester freshman year. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I had the rest of my time as an undergrad to do something about this and to fix Penn and change, you know, the curriculum and get universities to commit to provide, you know, direct benefit to society by training uh, students to be systematic thinkers and all the rest. And nobody cared. I uh, no one disagreed. There was no there was no pushback that says, "Oh yes, you know that's a bad goal for the university," or "Oh yeah, obviously, you know the curricular structure that we have is really suboptimal, and you know the one that you're proposing is clearly better." But yeah, you know it's going to take a lot. (laughs) University, and we don't really fundamentally care. Um, You know where you know the students are here not to study, right? How do we get out of class requirements and things like that? How do we not show up to lecture? How do we go and have fun? The professors yeah. are there to do research and certainly not to teach. they are none of the incentives. So um, the administration was there to kind of raise money and keep the wheels on the bus. Um, mm. And it's not to say that anyone individually didn't have that kind of perspective, but somehow in the collective, there was this assumption that no one would actually want to work harder, right? Mm. And you had professors who were passionate about teaching and really cared about their students, but they were always said, well, you know, but the majority of my colleagues don't. And so it's just never going to go anywhere. So after banging my head against the wall for four years and failing to have any substantive reform, I gave up. Mm. "What, What can I do? There's nothing that, that I can actually do, I can't move this immutable organization. So I went out into the working world, and it was the dawn of the commercial internet. And uh, I started working in various uh, kind of internet and communications uh, arenas. Eventually, got to Snapfish. Eventually, became the CEO, ran it, etc. And when I was there for a decade, and figured I did everything I wanted to do within that context, and was thinking about what to do next, I was actually writing my, you know, announcement speech. It was our 10th anniversary and all of our employees flew in from all over the world. And myself and the last co-founder of of the company, uh, we both kind of had a pact to leave together as opposed to... Uh, Uh, separately. And so we we were going to make this big announcement. No one knew. It was it was kind of a a big surprise. Uh, And as I was kind of writing this speech, I I was thinking about, well, you know, how do I summarize? This really isn't about him and me. It's about, you know, the 10 years and the achievements we've had and all the rest. So I was thinking about, okay, how do I summarize the past 10 years and, you know, the milestones and the big deals and, you know, all of that stuff. And as I was reflecting on those 10 years, I had this horrific realization, which was, you know, the the 10 years I was at at Snapfish from the beginning until when I left covered um, 9-11, the dot-com bubble, uh, kind of the giant recession afterwards, the Iraq war, the housing crash of 2008, (laughs) later around that. I mean, the Web 2.0 bubble in between right it was it was an, it started of course in the initial internet bubble it we saw everything right it was it was mm-hmm. a, a, an unbelievable um, uh, witness to history a participant in history uh, during that that period of time. Yet all of the things that came to my mind were things that had nothing to do with the core business mm-hmm. you know when one of our employees, you know, told me that she has breast cancer and I had to react to that on the fly. And uh, when we were sending an email to uh, residents uh, in New Orleans after Katrina and letting them know that their, their photos are safe and that we would, you know, send them a free set of prints, you know, uh, and getting emails back saying that those prints will be the only possession that they have remaining. Wow. you know, wow. And so things that we didn't set up the organization to do that, but kind of the horrific realization was that if at any point in our history we would have taken the wrong term and gone bankrupt, mm-hmm. the world would be exactly the same.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we failed, some other photo company would have succeeded and taken our market share, and there you go. Right, and. As much as I learned uh, and as much as I enjoyed my time um, at Snapfish, uh, working with my colleagues and you know business partners and uh, suppliers and vendors, I said to myself, "I'm never doing this again. I'm not spending mm-hmm. another decade of my life, especially if I'm lucky enough to have this kind of success, and doing it to sell widgets. It just doesn't make any sense." And that's when I Effectively, thought about okay. Well, what what can I actually contribute to the world? Um, And when I looked at kind of the major problems of the world, I I don't know anything about energy. I don't know, you know, I'm not a doctor. I can't really go and help in in a health uh, perspective. But I said, you know, I had a very clear idea (laughs) about what education should look like, Uh, and people with you know PhDs and senior administrators all said, yeah, you know, this is a much clearer way of looking at the world than we are. So said, I should probably do that. And that's mm. that's how it started.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you, after that, I mean, you took five years to get, you know, Merver, Minerva from idea to paying students. Right. How did you develop that MVP and get its first students through the door?
1: Yeah, that's actually one of the the strange. Uh, I mean, Minerva is strange in many, many ways. Right. <laughs> um, but the MVP for Minerva was going to take the lives of 18-year-olds, right, <laughs> and provide them a four-year undergraduate education, and for them to turn down other opportunities at Ivy right. universities and top universities around the world to do that. And so, unlike you know the the Silicon Valley mantra of "Oh yeah, you know, just launch crap and figure it out." Right. <laughs> we had to, on day one, be by an order of magnitude the best education known to man, mm-hmm. right? And then iterate from that basis. And so, the reason mm-hmm. that we spent five years, right, doing two years of effectively solo um, ideation and, and feedback, two years of having the entire team build the process, and then another year of having a pilot class uh, that came in for free and tested all of these theories is we just couldn't launch anything but comparatively excellent. Now, today, obviously, we, we believe that the maneuver education is vastly superior to the education we were offering five years ago, but compared to the rest of higher education, we knew that the education that our students were getting was vastly superior to anything that they could get anywhere else. And, mm. and so that's, that's obviously a, a one of the different pathways that we took at Minerva compared to to other startups.
0: Um, so Min- Minerva seems to have two missions, um, two big missions. One, reinventing what higher education looks like. And then two, laying out a model for other institutions to follow. Okay. What is it that really lights you up about these missions to get them out there?
1: Well, the overarching, unifying mission of everything that we do is nurturing critical wisdom for the sake of the world. Mm-hmm. Our Our perspective is that um, wisdom is not some mystical thing that comes down from a foggy mountain, right? <laughs> um, wisdom is very simply the appropriate application of practical knowledge to novel situations, mm. right? If you're encountering something you've encountered before and you know what to do because you've done it before, that's memory. That's not mm-hmm. wisdom, right? Right. The the whole point of a wise person is that they're encountering something they've never encountered before, yet they still have a good idea as to how to deal with that situation. And if there's anything that is necessary for humanity to move forward, it is that skill. Mm. Right? Information can be obtained anywhere.
0: Yeah, we can Google anything. Google Adult anything. <laughs> you can
1: read textbooks, you can yeah. see you know free courses online. You can do an entire major in any subject on the planet without ever even having to leave your home. And you can actually compare it far better than a university can curate it for you any, anymore. But the process of developing your intellect to be able to deploy various methods of thinking to certain issues. Is something that you have to do in a social environment. You mm. have to have a group of peers struggling with you to figure out those components and an expert that leads your intellectual development in that process. That sounds a lot like what educational institutions are set up to do. You're right. And so the idea of nurturing critical wisdom for the sake of the world means that you you have to create a model that actually delivers that kind of education but then if you actually want to have global impact you can't as one instance of it teach everyone it's it's impossible yeah. not only is it impossible it's also bad for humanity as 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 bad as having uh you know no wisdom <laughs> um the 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 other extreme is to have the same wisdom taught to everyone, a mm. way of thinking that everyone knows, and that 's it and so what you want is you want a heteroculture in education, you want different institutions having their own perspective on what wisdom is, but not having their own take on the facts of how to actually get that into somebody's head, right? Mm. Because there is a science of learning. It is, it is not a, you know, you know uh, feeling of learning, right? <laughs> it's not like, oh, I feel like I learn differently visually versus other things. That's just not true. There is no right. such thing as learning differences. That has been proven by the science of learning, right? You want to do deep processing. You know, unless you have kind of extreme learning conditions, right? Sometimes people have photographic memories. Sometimes people have profound learning disabilities. And that's, of course, uh, extremes. But for the vast majority of humanity, if you get somebody to deep process, they learn far better than just listening and absorbing, uh, trying to absorb information, right? And mm-hmm. so there are techniques that we've developed that you can plug any kind of philosophy of wisdom into Right? But then that ensures that students are exposed to the tools that you've curated for them. And so yep. that's really the goal. The, what, the, the unifying mission is that the world is better if it is wiser. And the only way to get wisdom spread throughout is to embrace the institutions that are already reaching students and help reform them as opposed to disrupt them.
0: Hmm. At Minerva, you guys rather than focus on like a canon curriculum of knowledge, you really focus on teaching like meta skills and what you called practical knowledge. So how's this practical knowledge more useful than um say teaching you know a curriculum that everyone should know right
1: well three hundred years ago, teaching you kind of the full body of knowledge known in humanity is was was not that hard right mm-hmm. I mean if you think about uh Almost anything we think about today—you know, science, math, uh, um, you know, social sciences, etc.—back, you know, in the era of enlightenment, that was all referred to as philosophy, right? It was <laughs> right. it was one effectively kind of unifying field, right? And there was a lot of mistakes, right? A lot of things that that were taught as truths that we didn't know, and when there was the dawn of the uh, the Enlightenment and the scientific method, and and you know it, it wasn't the worst form in the world to just teach you everything right today that's literally impossible impossible I mean, yeah not, i mean it's not even close to possible you can't even figure out a best of right uh, especially because from what perspective from what culture you know right. uh, it, it's it really is it's an impossibility however there is no cultural view of what is a fact versus a claim. There mm. are different folks who will, you know, argue that certain claims are true, but the fact that they are a claim as opposed to a fact is something that anyone across any culture can distinguish. Right. Right? Understanding what audience you're talking to and tailoring your message accordingly obviously varies in the way that you tailor it depending on culture or background, but the process of being conscious that you're speaking to an audience is culturally irrespective, right? Mm-hmm. So there are tools or cognitive tools and no matter what cultural context, no matter what field of study, no matter what environmental condition, those cognitive tools should be brought to bear. Mm. Right? And that is ultimately a finite set of tools, something that can be taught and that is applied to anything, not just field of study, but also situational uh, transfer, meaning that you learn something in one context and are able to transfer that use, that tool to another context. Mm-hmm. In other words, wisdom.
0: And you guys. Um don't just stand up front, teach this into a class, but rather you have them apply this in class. So they're constantly building the skill and using it in different contexts to build that muscle.
1: Exactly. And, and you know, the, the easy way to understand why, uh, think back to when you were growing up and a parent or a grandparent was, uh, you know, came to you and told you, you know, you shouldn't do X. How many times did you say, oh, wow, you're older and wiser. I should listen to you and, and do that.
0: Oh, no, but we had to learn ourselves. We had to learn
1: ourselves, right? It was, and in fact, even, you know, now, you know, as adults, oftentimes we are, we are approached by other adults that we respect and think, oh, wow, they're wise. And they say, oh, do something that you don't normally want to do. And you're like, yeah, thanks, old man. I'll, I'll just do it my own way. <laughs> and then you learn, right? And so the concept of passing on nuggets of wisdom and that, you know, as an education doesn't work. You know, I had a student ask me once, I said, well, why can't I just read a book with all the habits and concepts and then I'll have a Minerva education? I said, well, because you're, you're not going to know how to apply them, right? It's mm-hmm. one thing to say, understand who your audience is and tailor your message accordingly. It's another thing to actually apply it, right? When you're writing an email and you're asking a question, getting into the habit of saying, you know what? What if somebody were to receive that email? How would they feel impacted by the way I phrase that question? Would they read not the tone that's in my mind as I type it, but could they read a hostile tone? Is there a word choice that I can change in order to make sure they don't do that? People don't do that. That's not something that is is natural for us, right? right? And so you have to actually practice that and get feedback. Right? Because you say, oh, I now wrote a great message, but then somebody else looks at it and says, boy, that's not how it made me feel. I found that message to be disrespectful. You may be shocked to find that out. Right? And so that process of dealing with the realities of applications of these tools requires feedback. It requires an educational setting. And so that's really the, the big difference between being passive recipients versus active um, applicants with directed intellectual development, hmm. which is also different than the way we normally acquire wisdom, which is just by trial and error, right? right. Living. <laughs> and then we usually, you know, if the people attain, attain wisdom, it's usually much later on in life when their productive lives are perhaps behind them. Mm. And so the the idea is imagine if you had the collective wisdom of humanity and found a a way to effectively deliver it to young people, how much better would this world be?
0: Right, right. You guys are, you know, effectively equipping these students with these skills across a variety of contexts. How are you helping them to determine maybe which context they're most passionate about applying those skills in?
1: So one of the nice things about having a, a conceptually based core curriculum, right, where you're learning these habits of mind and foundational concepts, is that you need content to contextualize them. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you choose one field of content, right, if you say, I'm going to teach you all of these things uh, about, you know, world history or, or, or you know, or biology or, or some field, Then students won't be able to, the brain, the human brain is not able to take those lessons from that one field and then recontextualize it in another. You may teach somebody how to think critically about history, but when it comes to them having to think critically about making a home purchase decision or uh, which politician to support, it actually starts to fall apart. Right, the brain Mm -hmm. know how to naturally do that, and so in order to actually teach transferable skills, you have to contextualize them in many different ways simultaneously. Right, so when we talk about thinking about your audience, you know, it's kind of natural to think about it like you and I are talking to, right? Which is you and I are having conversation. A different way of thinking about audience is not necessarily you as my audience, but the audience of the people who are listening to you. Right. Another way of thinking about audience is. The, question, the example I gave, written communication, which is very different because there's no intonation, right? Now, an even more uh, a dramatic think, way of thinking about audience is thinking about biological audience. So how are people wired to react to the way you look, for example, right? Mm. That So actually, how you dress, how you project yourself, that also is an application of audience, right? So now... You know, when you've given these types of examples, and again, I'm just speaking them, but when you actually practice them and think about them and apply them yourself, now you've got a much broader understanding of audience. So why is this relevant? Because the content that we use within Minerva to illustrate these habits and concepts draws from all of the majors and concentrations that we then teach. So our students in their first year, not only learn these tools, but they sample all of the types of content areas that we then offer. And then in the sophomore year, they get to choose from a limited set of courses that cover more specific concepts, but ones that also traverse a number of fields. And so they, they always are making informed choice as they go through their four Mm. years until the fourth year when much of the education is personalized to the student and where they learn a deep understanding of a particular niche area that they're interested in. They do a capstone, they do practicas, uh, we create tutorials that cater to students' particular interests, uh, etc.
0: Yeah, and you guys kind of start from like A lot of handhold support in the beginning, but as they get closer towards that capstone, like they can start creating their own courses towards the end there. So really making that informed decision, but having the support to do so before getting to that point. Exactly right. How are you guys measuring the effectiveness of the education after um, they graduated? So you guys just had 2019 graduate. Um, How has that been going?
1: Incredibly well. So, you know, we, we always tell our students that there are... Uh, you know, two measures to to the success. Number one is, are they capable of pursuing what they're interested in pursuing, not what we institutionally drive them towards, right? Mm-hmm. At a level above that of Ivy League graduates. And then as they pursue that field, do, is their trajectory tracking ahead of those from other backgrounds, right? right. And so the second, of course, in some regards, it takes time to, um, to measure, right? We have some early indicators that are positive in that regard. But the first one we've obviously already seen. And when you look at their graduate school placements, which is kind of a very simple uh, measure, uh, all the way to the kinds of jobs that they've been pursuing and the kinds of positions they were getting, sometimes ones that aren't available to people who, haven't, who graduated 10 years uh, prior to, uh, from college, the impact is dramatic hmm. and the best part is when our students and come back or, or send us an email and say, Oh my God, you wouldn't believe what my boss just said or, you know, or the reaction. And it is about, wow, how did you know how to use these skills? You know, how do you solve that problem? Or how did you know how to, uh, actually address this context you've never been in before. Um, and, and that's extremely gratifying because when you're teaching, or creating an, an educational environment in which they're supposed to be learning things that are practical, that they should be using in the real world. And then the real world comes back and says, indeed, they learned that. <laughs> yeah. right? you, it's a, we obviously had indicators throughout. We tracked their learning progress, et cetera. But there's nothing better than, than reality to, to demonstrate that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's amazing. Um, many people go to the Ivy Leagues for the brand name education right. around that, and I think some employers even kind of use it as a pre-screen of those students. What is the value of brand and pre-screening students? And then how has Minerva established their brand?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, there is a large misconception among the about the higher education brands and what they mean before Minerva. I think there are really only two kinds of higher education brands. There was the neutral brand and the negative brand. <laughs> right? So the neutral brand are, you know, the Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge of the world. A very, very small number of institutions. Um, even half the Ivies I wouldn't consider to be neutral. Right? And neutral mm-hmm. means, okay, you went to a great university. I will you know, give you a shot to prove whether or not you are indeed smart or daddy bought your way in or you threw a ball over the fence and, and, (laughs) et cetera. And, you know, if you aren't just high school smart, but actually have matured and can think, you know, systematically, Mm -hmm. right? So as an example, when, when I was uh, an undergraduate, I went to the Wharton School of Business, you know, number one undergraduate business program in the world with no competition whatsoever, right? Yet, myself and almost all of my friends at Wharton were rejected by an order of magnitude, more uh, jobs that we applied for than the ones we got. Mm. Um, And so the brand was neutral, (laughs) right? It was, Mm. and actually the result of the brand was not that great. I mean, many of the um, of the companies I dropped my resume for wouldn't even interview me. So it's not like I got 70 interviews and, you know, got two or three job offers I dropped my resume in 70 different companies and I got, you know, a dozen interviews and then mm-hmm. got two or three job offers. And so the, the, the brand itself was very, very neutral, right. In that regard, it didn't put me over the fence. Then there's the negative brown uh, brand, right? So if a student says, okay, you know, we went to a university that is lower ranked or, you know, that isn't, you know, the number one program in its, in its says. The first thing that goes through a recruiter's mind is what's wrong with you, (laughs) right? Why didn't you go to the better program, right? And so, and again, it's not conscious, right? Mm -hmm. It's subconscious, but there is a signal that comes out, right? Why did you go to the, you know, 23rd ranked school, not the top ranked school? Mm -hmm. Ah, that's, there's a flag. Minerva tries to change that. And we try to create, and I think we've now succeeded at creating a positive brand in higher education. So not only is, are we the most selective university in, in the United States, and therefore there isn't the concept of you could have done better coming in, but more, right. more importantly, you know that during your time at Minerva, through your education, your global rotation, the nature of the student body you're in, the experiences you, you will have, you're actually developing and growing in ways that employers care about, in the way that graduate schools care about. You're a deeper and more systematic thinker. And so when people know about Minerva, and of course our job is to disseminate the knowledge of Minerva more broadly so that people recognize the brand more, but when people know about Minerva, the immediate association is, oh, wow, I want (laughs) to talk to that student, right? That's a positive brand, right? Mm. And that's something which I hope other universities will do, right? Especially mm. those that right now have that, in many cases, unfair stigma, right? Why is it that you went to Brown and not to Yale? What's wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so there's, you know, just totally unfair, but it's natural. It's just how human beings react, Right. How much better would it be for Brown to say, no, 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 no. Yeah, they could have gone to Yale, but they chose to come to Brown because we teach systematic methods of thinking before we let our students choose what they want to study content-wise. Boy, is that impactful.
0: Yeah. Um, What about the accreditation side? So you guys partnered with KGI, uh, KGI to get your accreditation What's the value of that? And then is there a way for education institutions to sidestep the accreditation?
1: Yeah, so I don't think so in a broad sense. I think there are ways, you know, if you really are, uh, you, know, you know, the boot camps and things like that, I'm going to take you for six to 12 months and train you to do a very specific job with a very specific skill, and that's what you want to do. And then when you want to change jobs, just go back to a different boot camp. That's fine, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's a way. But for the general population, it doesn't work. And, I, and I'll tell you the, the, the statistic that I think that, that highlighted it for me. If you take 100 uh, 17-year-olds who tell you that they're going to be doctors, right, they're going to university, they're going to be pre-med, right, and all the rest. How many of those 100 do you think will be practicing physicians?
0: Mm-hmm. And by the end, probably not many. Five. Five,
1: wow. Right? Now, if you don't go to an accredited undergraduate uni- university, you can't get into medical school. Right? right. You can't get into medical school. You can't be a doctor, right? You can't pass your boards, etc. And so if 20 times the number of doctors think that they must go to an accredited institution, right, as undergraduates, and I don't know the ratio for lawyers, but I'm sure it's similar right? I don't know the ratio for dentists and veterinarians and things like that. I'm sure that's similar, right? What happens is that you have this mass, uh, uh, belief that is not going to change, um, that you need to have not just an education, but a license, Mm. right? And as long as there is the license Raj, there will be the university, right? Mm. And by the way, licensure is pretty important, right? Maybe it's not oh, right. important for you to be a, you know, cutting hair. I, I don't really care if, you know, uh, people are licensed in order to cut my hair. I'm perfectly happy with them just learning on the job. Right. Um, but for sure, if somebody's you know, cutting my body open, <laughs> not <much> like chopping <laughs> on my hair, they better be highly licensed and highly observed. Right. And so, mm-hmm. and so, you know, the system as it is exists for a reason and it's not a bad system to do that. Right. But you, you, so you do have to, if you want to have systematic change, you have to work from within the system. If you want to have, you know, a niche spot thing, then sure, you know, do it, do it on the side. And by the way, this is why, you know, it's actually one of the least covered stories in education, which I I find bizarre, but you know, when the MOOC craze started eight years ago and everybody was saying, Oh, we're going to democratize education. And we're going to, you know, give everyone degrees or give everyone education without degrees and all the rest. None of that came to pass. Mm -hmm. Who takes MOOCs who gets certificates, people with college degrees, right? Because, you know, and they're the ones that are, that are actually paying for these certificates, right? Mm -hmm. Because, they already have the license. So, you know, if they want to actually learn something, they should go for it. But the 17-year-olds that, that are deciding, should I do this versus that? It would be pretty stupid, right, to, to go and spend, let's assume, four years of your time and effort and then at the end not get an actual credential, <laughs> right? You right. might as well actually go and uh, uh, and get and get the the degree, and so you know it's 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 not uh well set up for or the, or society is not well well set up to disrupt that uh, world uh
0: one aspect that still remains kind of challenging for Minerva is providing financial support for you know a large part of the student body. How have you guys been approaching that
1: well it's incredibly difficult right so we we believe that There are four parties that are responsible for the uh, access to education, right? And I guess government is a fifth, but that's kind of a separate uh, uh, issue, especially because because at Minerva, our students come from so many different government backgrounds, right? Mm
0: Because
1: we're majority international, 60 different countries, et cetera. So the most important party is the university. Um, And that's actually something that is completely left out of any conversations of of financial aid. The university is always this, you know, do good bystander, right? (laughs) And all of a sudden, government needs to make college free and parents have to pay or, you know, kids have to work and all the rest. But no, it actually starts with the institution. The Mm -hmm. institution has the most important responsibility, which is to keep costs as low as humanly possible, while delivering the best possible education. What does that mean? When it comes to the intellectual development of the student, you highly focus on that opportunity, you spend whatever money it takes to provide the best possible education, and then you don't spend a dime doing anything else. Mm. Right? Because, you know, when you spend a dime building or maintaining gothic buildings and libraries that are empty all the time and sports facilities and lawns and statues and fancy faculty offices, you are basically taking money away from society and you're reducing access. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing and the most important is the university has to be affordable. And Minerva, you know, outside of the cost of being alive, room and board, right, because you have to live somewhere and eat something,
0: <laughs>
1: right? Right. Um, Minerva's tuition and fees are is fifteen thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars right hmm. altogether that 's now a quarter of the tuition and fees at, uh, uh, of some private institutions and hundred percent of our our classes have fewer than twenty students. No university in the country can say that right and so we 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 spend more to educate students than anybody else, but our cost of the entire program is a fraction because we don't waste money on things that are not necessary. So that's responsibility. Mm -hmm. Number one, then responsibility is on the student themselves. The students are the ones that are benefiting from their education. Right. And, you know, that means that if a student can't quite afford the institution Taking a small loan, right, if you graduate, something that you can pay off in two or three years after you graduate, that's fine. That's good. That shows that the student themselves comes in and is willing to have a little bit of sacrifice, that it's not just an entitlement. Oh, I deserve this, right? Just give it to me. No, you know what? It's my education. I'm bettering myself. I will take some financial responsibility, not one that will change the trajectory of the kinds of jobs that I take, right? Not ones that will burden me, but ones where I demonstrate, you know what? I will make a sacrifice. I will Hmm. do that and potentially also work, right? While I'm studying and pay off some of my living expenses myself, right? And Mm so, you know, we facilitate loans and work for our students, right? Not necessarily that we, we would expect them to find their own jobs, right? We, we take that responsibility. Sometimes students don't have access to loans, so we have to make sure that we provide that. But it's an important component. The third responsible party, of course, is the family. You have children, you make a commitment. <laughs> Your commitment <laughs> is to actually take care of them. And so um, the, you know, we, we get a lot of students uh, coming in whose parents have plenty of money, but they opt not to want to pay. They say, "Well, can't you pay for our students?" And the answer is, "Go pounce in!" Um, <laughs> under no circumstance, if a family has uh, uh, can afford to pay for their children's education, should a poor family be further burdened to help subsidize that. That is the most regressive idea. Which is actually what, what's so funny because so much of the free college, uh, 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 you know, thinking comes from quote unquote progressives, which makes. No sense. It's the most regressive policy you could, probably, you could possibly do. Take money from mm. poor people, all of whom pay some form of tax, and give it to rich right. people. It makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, completely bonkers. Um, and then there is the broader, broader societal responsibility. Right? Once the institution does what it can, once a student has some skin in the game, once parents contribute what they can afford to contribute, right? then it is the role of society. And you know, mostly that comes in the form of philanthropy. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, so the difficulty that we're facing isn't in the first three. We're super efficient. Our students work and have personal responsibility. Their families do contribute whatever they can because that is required. The difficulty is that we at Minerva are humanists. We don't look at someone based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity or geography or gender or anything else. We believe that if you provide a human with wisdom, what they will do will be good for the world. Mm -hmm. I don't care if that wisdom is deployed in a town in Kosovo. Kosovo is more prosperous. That is better for me in San Francisco. Right. That perspective is close to extinct in today's Mm -hmm. world find finding a philanthropist that actually believes that humanity needs to be nurtured as opposed to their country their town their community some you know random community halfway around the world that they feel sorry for right there are very, very, very few individuals that deploy their resources for global systematic change. Very Mm. few. Mm. And that's our biggest challenge. Now, we're extremely fortunate that we have, you know, already found three extraordinarily generous donors that together have funded more than $30 million worth of scholarships uh, for our students. And that's Really wonderful, but we probably have to find, uh, you know, another three that can that can uh, that can fund another thirty-five million uh, beyond that before the institution could uh, live off of the endowment that we we've, we've tried to build for it uh, in perpetuity, and so that is a struggle, and it's a struggle not because. Anybody who knows Minerva doesn't think we provide the best education in the world or doesn't love the fact that we bring students from all over and they're much more socioeconomically diverse than a typical uh, highly selective university. But when push comes to shove and someone is thinking, let me give higher education money, it's easier for people to give $100 million to build a building that a university doesn't need Mm -hmm. than to give $10 million that will then go directly to students. We don't need any institutional support, right? Mm. And will allow them to access that education because they come from countries they that are not top of mind for um, for the donor.
0: Yeah, actually, putting the money towards the students, their education, their success, rather than you know putting another building. Except it's very hard to for the like the person donating to see that ROI like in perspective. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the students are unable to fully pay for their education, how will Minerva make um, profits going forth in the future? Is profi- uh, profits from the business side, the project, Minerva project, Correct. supporting so, that?
1: Right. So so Minerva is two different entities, right? There's mm-hmm. the um, Minerva University, the Minerva Schools of KGI, and the university is a nonprofit. So there's no profit motive for the university. The university actually... Uh, has the licenses for all of the curriculum and technology give, gifted to it by the corporation. Mm-hmm. And then there is the corporation that built the learning environment. All of our students take their classes via live video as opposed to in physical classrooms that lets us uh, actually guide their applications of these eighty habits and concepts that they learn across all of their classes, make sure that they're mm-hmm. fully active and participating. And so the corporation is uh, uh, then makes money not from you know the university that this nonprofit that we set up, but by actually licensing this system to other educational institutions around the world right mm. and so it's a it's a separate you know entity but it um, uh, but it it creates its um, effectively the financial aid policy of the nonprofit has no bearing on the corporation
0: you mentioned. Uh, quite a bit about Minerva trying to influence the other institutions or kind of be a model for other institutions if you were to start over today as a founder where would you start
1: as a founder of Minerva or as a founder of something else (laughs) of a a
0: founder of an education institution
1: so I mean well, I think probably the, the most remarkable thing about our journey at Minerva is that if you and I were having this conversation nine years ago, um, and Minerva was still a figment of my imagination, I would be able to describe 85 to 90% of Minerva as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and this is kind of related to that first conversation we had about the, the MVP launch, right? Mm-hmm. Minerva isn't an experiment, right? It is an application of science. We know what works and we design an institution knowing ahead of time it will work, not to mm-hmm. say, oh, well, we hope it will work, right? And so if I were to start Minerva over again, I would basically be Minerva as it is today. There wouldn't be much, many changes to it. Um, if somebody else is thinking about starting uh, an educational institution, the most important thing to do is start with purpose. What is it that you're trying to achieve? We started with a purpose of nurturing critical wisdom for the sake of the world. Perhaps it wasn't phrased as beautifully nine years ago, <laughs> but it was the same concept. It was the idea that wisdom, sapienta critica, our uh, our motto, which we already had back then, um, was the core of our mission. Mm. And so once you have that guiding light all of the decisions that you make will become very apparent. Right? So if a traditional university exists as any university president will tell you to create and disseminate knowledge. Right? This is effectively the pre-printing press perspective of the university. Well, That is what you're going to be centered on creation, research, and dissemination, publication, teaching, or lecturing of knowledge. Right? Mm -hmm. It is hard to commit to reform so long as you cling to that purpose. Mm -hmm. But if you find a different purpose, all of a sudden you can say, Well, here is the ship that I'm sailing. And it may take a while to turn its direction. But if I know that the northern star is actually over there as opposed to over here, you'll move. Mm -hmm. When you start something from scratch, the beauty is you're building a ship to begin with. Mm -hmm. As long as you're sailing towards that purpose, and every decision you make has fidelity to that purpose, right? You don't compromise. If you are fortunate enough to be able to pursue your mission, it will work out well. And that's perhaps the hardest thing um, about being an entrepreneur. When I I started in the world of of startups, I I was always afraid to be an entrepreneur. I always came in after somebody else started it. They had the idea and I (laughs) kind of came in a little bit after and kind of helped grow it. And... I met an entrepreneur many years ago who told me that an entrepreneur, the definition of an entrepreneur is someone who is perfectly willing to fail. Hmm. And in my journey, working for other people, I was never willing to fail. I wanted to avoid it like the plague, right? I was you know, uh, you know, and when I was in a startup that didn't, that didn't work out, it was devastating. And when mm-hmm. I was at Snapfish, you know, when we had so many existential things, it was come hell or high water by sheer force of will and power. We will not let this go down. We are going to, you know, change course, do everything, compromise everything that is necessary to compromise. We're going to continue to live. When you pursue, pursue purpose, all of a sudden, I understood what that person meant. Mm-hmm. Because before, when I felt like I have responsibility for my employees, if we shut down, they're out of a job, right? And that's the worst thing I could possibly think of, right? right? And in the context of most organizations, that's true. You have a responsibility to your employees, to your customers, et cetera. And that's what's primary in your mind. But when you're purpose-driven, when you see a reality that has to be changed in the world, and all of a sudden you say, well, I want that reality to be true. If the direction of the organization, the vehicle to achieve that reality is compromised, right, for the sake of the survival of the organization, what's the point of being in the organization? Right. What's the point of the organization's survival? And so throughout the journey at Minerva, I had many times when people told me, you're putting this organization at risk. We won't launch. We won't get accreditation. You know, we won't get far funding, right? Compromise, compromise, compromise. I would never allow that to happen because I would rather not launch. I would rather not even have Minerva if Minerva was not nurturing critical wisdom for the sake of the world, Mm. if it was, you know, nurturing, you know, good thoughts for the sake of the world, (laughs) right? Or, you know, kind of like, you know, jumping up and down and talking about critical wisdom for the sake of the world, or, you know, nurturing critical wisdom for the sake of, you know, the organization. Like, that's not who we are. And so having that maniacal, uncompromising focus means that the likelihood that you will get out of the gate perhaps is maybe a little bit lower, even though I would argue it could be higher. But that when you're out of the gate, you have got the thing that you wanted to have, not Mm -hmm. some Frankenstein version of it.
0: Well, before I get to my last question, where can everybody find more about you and Minerva?
1: Uh, Finding out about me is not relevant, but you can find (laughs) out about Minerva at uh, minerva.kgi.edu or at minervaproject.com.
0: Awesome. Well, my last question is how can we push the
1: world to evolve? Well, pushing the world to evolve is not easy. <laughs> but I believe that the answer is in an incentives. Humanity is uh not just humanity, you know, living beings are incentive reaction machines. <laughs> right? So far as the incentive is to do X, it doesn't matter what we exhort and, uh, and and talk about, people will do the opposite. You know, there is this saying that, or belief, that democracies don't go to war with one another, right? That if you look at historically, uh, that when you look at conflict, it was almost always a conflict between Uh, institutions or countries that were not fundamentally democratic on both sides. And as soon as you have democracy on both sides, there really is no war. Now, that's not 100% true, (laughs) but I think it is largely makes sense. And I would add, certainly, we have no evidence that democracies that trade with one another go to war. Why? Because of incentives. Mm. Right. If your society is isolated, right. And you have the ability to, uh, uh, to gain more resources by fighting with your neighbor and grabbing some stuff. Well, it's hard to resist that incentive. Right. But if your prosperity is tied to their prosperity the likelihood that you will try to grab things from them, even if you may get more, but the risk of getting less doesn't make sense. The incentive isn't there. And so too often when we talk about moving the world forward, we talk about lofty ideals. But lofty ideals, even when backed up with novel approaches, right, oftentimes don't work. You have to think about the incentive structure. If you want to reform global higher education, it's not enough to build the best university in the world. You have to build the best university in the world that is also the most prestigious. Mm. Because prestige is actually what drives higher education to change. So you have to both understand the motivating factors and the path to progress
0: well wonderful ben thank you so much for coming on the podcast today i appreciate everything that you have shared pleasure
1: thank you so much for having me
0: thank you so much for listening as you know word of mouth is the number one way for things to grow evolve is not just a podcast but a movement and to help this movement grow i would appreciate so much if you were to show this podcast episode with a friend with another entrepreneur with an early stage founder who needs inspiration and the tools and tactics to make an impact on this world. So please share this episode. And until next time, my friend, keep evolving.